Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. After I watched the movie, I was just like kind of going through the Loretta Lynn discography on Spotify and. Some of the artwork is so funny, man. Like the one for oh, Don't yeah. Come Home a Drinkin' is really funny. Just like her stern but loving look on that <laughs> one is great. <laughs> Gotta convey the mood of the song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say I like that about older music, how like every single album cover is a picture of them. You know what I mean? And it's Yeah, because like, yeah, you needed to know what they looked like, too. True, yeah, you didn't know back in the day. They're usually making a facial expression that relates to the music, so it's like a YouTube thumbnail of a reviewer, you know, making like a shocked face (laughs) at like a reaction track. Another great one is uh, Fist City. I don't know if you guys have uh, heard that Loretta Lynn track. Oh, Fist City is like, that's one of my favorite uh, albums of hers, and just song in general. It's a great song, and yeah, Fist City, and like her face is sitting on her fist. Uh, like that's her pose it's like the classic you know laying on your knuckles kind of thing and uh just i don't know something about this style of classic country artwork uh is very literalist i guess and that's what's so funny about it because your face and stay out of my way if you don't want to go to this city a lot of these are you know i i want to talk about this in relation to the movie coal miner's daughter the uh subject a lot of this takes place during more like countercultural artistic movements and even like the outlaw country movement, which obviously I'm not going to say that's like total counterculture, but you know, outlaw country stuff was going on at the same time she was cutting albums. And it's just like, I don't know, there's something about uh, the more, I don't know, conservative and studio friendly art style of the time. That is so funny to me and also just like generally appealing. I do like it without irony, but I think there's also a level of detachment we have now uh, and so many other types of music had by then that these people didn't have that makes it so much funnier. Like JT, you always post those George Jones uh, album artworks where he's just popping a huge goofy smile, you know, and like you don't see that kind of sincerity in uh, the way artists pose for album covers after like the late. 60s uh, or really after the mid 60s outside of country music Uh, those have always been just one of my favorite parts of like old country albums because it's just like uh just when they're doing like less goofy shit sometimes it's always just something is just a little bit off just seeing them in like just like a blank sort of color palette space Mm -hmm. most of the time they're just like the only thing that's on display yeah you know it's funny we're talking about these album covers uh i'm looking at the cover to her 2018 album and it kind of looks like <laughs> the the albums like the album cover like wiz khalifa album covers where like they just photoshop <laughs> oh, his head yeah onto another person yeah no she looks photoshopped into it <laughs> yeah that era is so strange because I, I was looking into this because the film doesn't do a very good job at like uh, keeping the chronology of her career and discography. It's more of a uh, 
film about the Sissy Spacek character and the uh, Tommy Lee Jones character's relationship. So I was looking through the discography after, and you know, she goes away for a while and then comes back and has this late in life resurgence in the 2000s and uh, 2010s as a legacy act. And uh, those last few albums, man, that artwork style is atrocious. <laughs> yeah, she's got her own font here. The low, yeah. low, low redolent font. Yeah, I like that it's very consistent across uh, the last few horrible albums. Uh, <laughs> I, I sampled some of it, and there is a cover on one of the last ones. Uh, I think it's on Wouldn't It Be Great. Uh, there, there's a cover of uh, I Saw the Light by Hank Williams that is actually quite good, you know, and she sounds very old on it, but the production is horrible because it sounds like contemporary country music. Welcome yeah. to Extended Clip. I'm one of your hosts. Cowboy Eddie Averill. Oh wow! Well, I'm I'm just Malcolm Bach, <laughs> and I'm JT White. JT White, the Rambler, and Malcolm, yeah, yeah. the Gambler. True. JT White sounds like a great country artist name. So maybe exactly. You got to have the that. initialism going. You know, it's another week on the extended clip month of music, and this week. We're talking about country music via Coal Miner's Daughter. Uh, this is a 1980 biopic by Michael Apted uh, about Loretta Lynn. Uh, Loretta Lynn is played by Sissy Spacek here. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones as the husband, uh, do. And you also have Beverly D'Angelo as Patsy Cline in a supporting role. Uh, Patsy Cline and Sissy Spacek providing all of the uh, the cover versions of the songs on the soundtrack. JT, you brought this one to the table. Uh, what were your uh, What were your initial thoughts on the movie before we get into before we go any further with country music stuff? I, the movie's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's pretty middle of the road for me. Like there are definitely like it, it's. I don't want to say exactly what you think of when you hear about like cookie cutter, like sort of music biopic, because I like, I I don't know. You said at the beginning, it's uh, mostly focusing on uh, the relationship between SpaceX and Jones. And in that space, it kind of like diverges a little bit. And I like that so much of the film is devoted to the come up and like her rising and grinding. And I think that like, it got me thinking about like with the music project overall, it's like uh, a very interesting ethnographic way to sort of examine movies because with music, we're talking about like these varieties of different subcultures that are oftentimes like very particular uh, to a place, whether it's a butcher holler or Manchester, or, like, uh, black, like, urban life being, and, like, how uh, kids in the suburbs uh, relate to that. I feel like you're capturing these particular moments, and I, I really like the sort of first, maybe third of the movie, where it's them uh, in, like, Kentucky, and it's just sort of, like, ultimate, like, rural poverty, Um and just sort of how, like, th- there are some uncomfortable moments with, like, SpaceX there where, like, Jones is kind of, like, he, he like, picks up, like, her when she's, like, 14. 13. And then the first, 
13. Yeah, when the first time they like fuck, it is like very non-consensual. Um Certified. and the film what would you say? Certified non-consensual. <laughs> Jesus. Um but yeah, there are like those elements that I feel like sort of create some nuance that isn't like explored too much, but I think just like Loretta Lynn's uh, story in and, of, in and of its own right, being like the driving force of it is very compelling. And just like, you don't, I don't know. I feel like obviously she's still very young when she pops out four kids because she got like married at uh, 13, but like, it's weird to hear a story of a musician who was like a mother and a homemaker mm-hmm. who like blew like blew up, and uh, that part of the journey is fun, even though it's like relatively conventional and like loses my interests at points. See, the thing is, I I get what you mean by that, and it dramatically makes the most sense in those early parts. Like it feels the most like a real drama movie. But at the same time, it's a movie about Loretta Lynn, and we don't really get her, like, focusing on music until, like, 50 minutes in, <laughs> which I thought was kind of ridiculous. I, I, I had the same thought. I it Not even – I was just like, dang, she's just not really into music much. You know what I mean? <laughs> just at the beginning of the, the movie for someone who's a musician. And it's kind of funny that Tommy Lee Jones ends up, you know, giving her the guitar, you know, kind of uh, – you know, maybe like how LeBron's dad gave him a basketball. You know, he's got to take some insane credit for that. I also think, and this sounds like a Cinema Sins ass complaint, you know, uh, but it's a setup for what I think is the main problem with the chronology of the movie and how it depicts the career of an artist. Is that like, uh, so I, w- I was looking at the, the real timeline after, right? And she gets married, you know, when she's 13 or whatever. Uh, she records her first song in 1960, which is 12 years later. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess they show it by her just popping out a bunch of kids. But that passage of time, that like 12 years between marriage and like writing a song, uh, seems to just breeze by without it. Like, I don't know. There's so many landmarks that are uh, kind of sloppily breezed by in a way. Uh, just like to steamroll onto the next one. And I don't know, it was weird. It was one of those things where not not to be all, oh, the adaptation's not as good as the real thing, but you know, even just reading the wiki after and looking through her uh, discography and stuff, I was like, damn, there is a lot of uh, potential here for a cooler movie. But the movie as it is is much more, as I said about Spacek and Tommy Lee Jones. And yeah, uh, as JT said, like the kind of uh, you know, super rural poverty, uh, kind of a fictionalized version of what we saw in a film like Harlan County, USA, uh, the documentary we talked about a couple years ago, uh, is very well depicted as far as like Hollywood big biopics go. Um, and the relationship between Tommy Lee Jones and Sissy Spacek is genuinely uncomfortable to watch, but I think that's probably part of it, I guess. I don't know, that may be intentional. Oh, dude, I don't need no book to tell me what's wrong. You just need to be a little more patient and gentle with me, honey. That's all. I just need a little more time. Give you a little more time. Well, let me add up all these damn things I'm supposed to give you some more time on. You need a little more time to learn how to cook. Need a little more time to learn how to clean the damn house. 
Plus, you need a little more time to learn how to love your man the way you're supposed to. Goddamn, is there anything that you know how to do right now? Do one of you want to get me that wedding ring? <sighs> Malcolm, what did you think about the dynamic of like the, the dramatic parts versus the uh, biopic beats that it starts hitting real quick over the last you know hour you know in, in regards to the movie like uh, you know i think we're all call all in kind of agreement that we're not exactly crazy over the movie but it's not exactly too bad either um mm -hmm. it's it's just uh i think what we were kind of talking about before with uh you know with the album covers the old the oldest the older album covers it is kind of, this movie's kind of like and like that album cover in a sense where it, this, mm -hmm. it's presenting an image of Loretta Lynn that's very respectful to her, of her, like very, you know, it's like talking about how she came up and how that's impressive. Um, but it doesn't really get too much into like the interior, like, I don't know, like the interiority, like too much, you know, it focuses that through the dynamic of Tommy Lee Jones and Sissy Spacek. And I think, you know, it's interesting how this movie treats that dynamic because there's definitely some tension there. But like, you know, you can't help but think like if they made this movie to today, there might be more negative focus on that story. But instead, it's kind of more it's part of the lore here, you know, for the country music listeners. You know, she was, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, barefoot hillbilly and. Uh, you know, had kids at 13 is like the stereotype of, of what we think of that and still kind of managed to rise uh, to fame. But, you know, there's not much examined there of kind of like, you know, is the Tommy Lee Jones character, you know, the greatest guy or whatnot. It, it's very respectful to her legacy. And it's kind of like watching this movie, I feel like this is kind of like the movie she would want to come out at the time for her image. So it kind of lines up with that. And I guess there's a bit of a disappointment that it doesn't go deeper. But yeah, I think some of the, like, the Tommy Lee Jones and Sissy Spacek, that's where, like, most of the meat on the bone is throughout the movie because it is a very traditional mm -hmm. biopic. So I guess I do find that the most interesting. But I, uh, you said you, you, gra you grazed the wiki page, you know, what, what, what's something that you feel like this movie was missing that you read in that page? Uh, I don't know. I mean, so she had, let's say, a five-year duo-ship with uh, Conway Twitty where they had a number one hit every single year from 70 to 75. You know, like, I feel like the career thing is just breezed by and just shown through. Uh, and, like, I get that you want to maybe focus more on the dramatic stuff, and so you just really feel obligatory. Uh, as a filmmaker, maybe you feel obligated to summarize all the career stuff very quickly, but it's all through these like four or five performances on, you know, the Loretta Lynn TV show. And there's really nothing except maybe one line of dialogue about like record, like albums after the first like 45 minutes. Like that first recording they do is really the only uh, kind of music recording thing that is involved there, uh, which I find really strange because I'm just like, looking through the discography and the credits and stuff and there's such an interesting musical narrative there and so much of it is because it's um 
the songwriting of hers is so autobiographical. You know, I've been staring uh, at this artwork for uh, Don't Come Home a Drinkin' with Lovin' on Your Mind, uh, the classic album by her uh, with the classic title hit song. And I don't know, just the the dynamic of such a kind of like dark uh, subject matter like that. That's a pretty dark song. It's right there at the title uh, and naming the album after it and the very like aw shucks conservative look of her face on the album cover. That dynamic feels more powerful than what the film attempts to do uh, with like the darker, grittier scenes uh, of their relationship cut against like the glamour and industry success that she has uh and i just feel like it's one of those instances where like so many musical biopics maybe the downfall is that the art itself is so great that it's hard to really make any kind of statement on it through another art form without letting the original art speak for itself you said this chicken your last time because now What you're saying is totally on point where, like, I feel like it just, like, it's it, it does make sense to some extent in the fact that, like, how autobiographical her the her body of work is and, like, how frequently uh, her husband as an antagonist pops up in her songs and how it does have this, like, very complicated relationship, like, especially... Uh, I don't know, we're talking about Fist City, where it's like, it's about her husband being a philanderer, but she will still, like, kick the ass of the woman that's cheating there. And there's this weird sort of, like, like, even, like, through all of her songs, that it's this uh, kind of, like, I guess, bumpkin feminism, Mm -hmm. where it's, like, kind of pushing back and forth between, like, having these more progressive like feminist elements in her songs with also being like obviously very traditional uh and conservative um yeah i think that dynamic's really interesting too because you know one of her first big songs is like uh or really the first single that she wrote i think uh or her first hit single that she wrote or something like that Dear Uncle Sam, kind of a contemplative song about Vietnam, not exactly a full-on protest song the way the counterculturalists would, uh, but for a country singer, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but regardless, like then you have the song The Pill and uh, other songs about her being frustrated with getting pregnant too much, and now that she's on birth control she feels more comfortable and that's like a plot point in the movie uh where she is like kind of upset about a pregnancy but then in the movie beverly d'angelo uh just like convinces her to have fun you know (laughs) just like we're gonna have a big we're gonna have a big baby shower it'll be cool uh but then she has like song after song about like the pain that it comes with and uh you know especially as i said the pill is a big one x-rated is another big one and it's like 
or sorry, Rated X rather, uh, is a number one country song. Uh, and it's like a pretty dark song about reckoning with her own legacy and stuff like that. And I feel like this film, as Malcolm said earlier, maybe is even like the estate of Loretta Lynn would be very happy with it. But I feel like well, I mean, the art like into a, itself it's... has so much like it only teases at how uh, dark the art itself is through the drama of the first like 40 minutes. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, uh, the her autobiography of the same title, I believe, w- was released, like, uh, right before the film. And then it was, like, sort of optioned uh, very quickly after. Or maybe even together when, like, she was getting uh, the book published. So it definitely is that very clean aspect of it where it's just, like, trying to sanitize it. And, like, I don't know, with what you're saying there, like, I... Yeah, no, just even in the most interesting part of the film and where it's, like, somewhat successful in, like, depicting how complicated the relationship can be, it just really falls short of, like, exploring anything interesting within that. And then also is just what you were saying earlier, Eddie, like, just skipping around between, like, her immense body of work and not really, like, covering any of it or, like revealing anything more meaningful or important about it yeah and you know it sounds like we're being fully negative about the movie and i think it's more that there is untapped potential because it's still i think a generally pleasant movie like i still liked it and i think the lead performances uh just kind of elevate what otherwise is kind of a generic biopic thing it's like the the subject matter is interesting enough and the lead performances are good enough to where it's not, I don't think it's bad. It's just that like, there's a lot of complaints to be had about the traditional musical biopic tropes that everyone's complained about for the last 10 years. This shows that uh, those trends in the musical biopic were already tired in 1980. Yeah. Like, I think this is a very performance heavy movie. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I think, I think a lot of like, I think why it's remembered is because of the sissy spacex and you know the tommy lee jones performance too yeah and i think i think they bring bring a lot to it like i you know i was watching this movie and i kind of came to think like tommy lee in like the early 70s and 80s like he he really had an edge to him like uh, to me like like the way he acted and like just carried himself like i i I really i really i mean i'm he's a well-lauded actor so you know but like i i don't know it just Watching this movie, that uh, it uh, it reemerged something in my mind of the just you know how good of an actor he could be, and is a man who's never looked young in his life. Like yeah. even Rolling <laughs> Rolling Thunder three years before this, he already looks old. Like it's ridiculous. True, yeah, it is. It is. It that is that is a, a sick type of actor. The the people who have been old forever. You know what I mean? That's that's a very special type. Of I mean skill. it. It makes the beginning so much more uncomfortable because if they're playing, you know, their ages at the time, sure, he's not at, like, he's probably like 30 or whatever, the husband, when he picks her up as a 13 year old, but especially it being Tommy Lee Jones, he just looks so much older at all times. Yeah. And like, I, I, SpaceX is like someone who's looked 
you know, played younger throughout her career too. You know, exactly. Yeah. Like, and it's been, and I think her like performance, especially when she's very young is like convincingly young. Totally. And that's impressive because this is what, seven years after badlands and she's still (laughs) able to pass as 13, like very well, uh, as well as like the rest of the movie. Uh, like I, I think her performance really is great and probably the model for a lot of performance-based biopics that maybe aren't great, but like uh, her performance really is. Yeah, like, you know, it's kind of funny thinking about this movie. Like it's kind of almost like like prototypical music musical biopic. And like I, I, like I feel like this is like a perfect example of a movie. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Regardless of its of its quality because I, I I don't think too highly or too negatively of it. Like, I I just feel like it's a, it's almost like a template and you kind of go through uh, this Michael Apted's directorial career. And he, he he definitely was a a journeyman as they say. Mm -hmm. So, and this kind of being maybe his, uh, you know, brightest moment. So I, I don't know. This kind of an interesting thing to consider. I saw that he directed chasing Mavericks a movie about Santa Cruz, California, my hometown. So I just wanted to randomly mention that, I guess. That's kind of funny. I don't know anything about that movie. It's about Santa Cruz? It's about it's about this surfer from Santa Cruz chasing okay. cha- chasing the maverick waves, if you don't know okay. about the, the, the oceans oh. around here. This is the guy... Have you ever heard of the, like, Seven Up movies that were, like, a documentary where they, like, filmed these kids... When they were seven, no, and then just they followed up on the kids like every seven years. Yeah, it was uh, when Boyhood was coming out. People were like, "Yeah, this guy already did that," and it was this thing nobody had seen. It just seems like incredibly <laughs> boring. Like, yeah, I try. I I definitely tried to watch it at one point. I was like, "What the fuck? This fucking sucks." Yeah, sixty-three but, uh, up, fifty-six up, forty-nine up, etc. Going backwards through his filmography. <laughs> props to him for keep it keeping it going on. You directed a Chronicles of Narnia sequel, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which what is that all about? I have how how have sixteen people I follow on Letterboxd seen this Chronicles of Narnia: The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? I I almost want to call these people out. What are you doing? I I remember seeing because I saw the first one. You know, I was young mm-hmm. enough to fall into that category, and I remember seeing the trailers for this one. And it was one of you know at a younger age, you know, you don't discern as much. But I, at a young age, I was like, that looks bad. I don't want to see that. So <laughs> credit to me. Yeah, no, this guy has a uh, very, very strange filmography. Of course, seems like it was kind of killed by that 007 movie he did, The World Is Not Enough. Uh, kind of goes on a 10-year directing hiatus after that. But maybe he's just saving up for like... I don't know what would that be like a hundred up like he's like really waiting for like a big one to come <laughs> and like he just visits the graves you know and it's like a James Benning movie <laughs> <laughs> oh my mistake he did not take a directorial hiatus after that the movies just got way smaller it looks like <laughs> I was kind of looking at the wrong sorting method there uh, but yeah no his career seems to kind of go downhill after that but a lot of uh a lot of very average-looking studio pictures in the 80s uh, that I will hopefully not watch anytime soon. Although, I do like this poster for The Squeeze, uh, starring Stacy Keach 
Have you guys? Uh, he, it looks like Stacy Keach is wearing a big condom on the poster. Like his body is in a big condom. <laughs> I think this guy throughout his career like got high level actors, just never really like popped. I guess because I'm looking at it's got a movie with Val Kilmer and Sam Shepard. We got a Gene Hackman movie. This guy's worked with a, a John Belushi comedy called Continental Divide. <laughs> that that's a Seinfeld movie, dude. That's. <laughs> He made he made a um, the imitation game fifteen years earlier with Kate Winslet and Doug Ray Scott. Doug Ray Scott. Oh, he did a he did a Richard Pryor movie, Critical Condition. This guy's. You the take man. out the sixty three up, like the Up series, and the World Is Not Enough entry or the James Bond entry. Like this guy has maybe the fakest filmography I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> this, guy, this guy was given every single famous actor to make a movie with, and none of them stuck. You guys know how many movies I've seen, right? Like, and how many, like, <laughs> 90s genre movies I've seen. Have you ever fucking heard of Nell, 1994? <laughs> Nell and Gorillas in the Mist that were a track catching my uh, 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 Nell, yeah. 1994, starring oh Jodie Foster and Liam Neeson. And I've never heard of it because it's directed Yo, by Michael Apted. Nell, Nell, this is what Nell's about. In a remote woodland cabin, a small town doctor discovers Nell, a beautiful young hermit woman with many secrets. That's what wow. Nell's about. Oh, man. I can't wait woman. to find out what Nell is up to. I think we're going to have to check that out. You know, I thought I had seen most, you know, even I don't even think Felipe Furtado has logged that one. That's like ridiculous. He did. Oh, he did. Okay. He did. He did. Of course. Sorry. It, it is a 90s crime movie of some capacity. So he has uh, he has logged it. Back to Coal Miner's Daughter, though. Uh, that little detour about Michael Apted's filmography, though, feels very Michael Apropos, if you will, for the form and style of this movie. It's just general genre competence. It almost feels undirected. It's like... This movie's almost directed by Sissy SpaceX performance. And uh, otherwise, everything is just kind of there at the level that it was in 1980, which, hey, it's not bad, you know? It's not bad direction. I could see him just being a director that lives and dies by the strength of the uh, scripts and performances and kind of just calls cut in action. So many points I was, like, looking for, like choices to be like oh well we can talk about this on the podcast like this is like something like interesting that he he's doing here but that never really like wound up happening and it was just like okay i mean like yeah they're just some just pleasant enough just like studio movies like this where it's just like yeah like with the material here you could do certainly do a lot better but just like I don't know. I like Loretta Lynn. It's just, it's fun to see something light enough about her. Um, even though it is like, it feels incredibly long. One more apted detour. Okay. Tell me this isn't a fucking 30 rock movie. A 90s courtroom movie called Class Action with Gene Hackman and Mary Elizabeth Mastrianano. <laughs> uh, Get real, Michael oh, Apted. There's. Patang Yang Kipper Bang. <laughs> see, that's oh the thing. I saw God. that poster and it just said Kipper Bang. I didn't see the yeah, full no. title. They didn't it's put a... the full title on the poster because the title is probably somewhat offensive. Uh, looking at it, I'm not going to investigate any further 
into Patang Yang and Kipper Bang. Dude, this guy directed so many movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Letterbox probably won't even do it credit. I bet IMDb has like 300 credits for him. He has 56 Letterbox director credits. Yeah, this guy must have delved into television. Maybe he just he kept it this, strong and just was. This filmed. guy made a deal with the British devil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he directed some episodes of Masters of Sex, Mister. Oh well, that's that's how you know he's quality. <laughs> Monsieur mise en scène. Dude, Apted knows how to hit it right. That's the, the guys who directed uh, Masters of Sex. You know, they were tested beforehand. What do you think is a greater feat in uh, elevating the televisual art to that of cinema? Masters of Sex or Master of None? <laughs> I gotta go Master of Sex. People, you know. Yeah, of course. I think people claimed both of those were quite cinematic upon release. Masters of Sex, I remember, was always a nominated for Emmys and stuff. And I was like, look, I'm not watching. That. I'm, f- I'm 13. I know that's not for me. <laughs> That's what they call, they should call Aziz Aznari the master of sex after that <laughs> article came out. <sighs> yeah, he seems like literally the greatest of all time. I mean, I know this is old news, but people are going to look back at that article and be like, damn, this is like yes. Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. He had a crazy <laughs> night. This guy was the head of his time. real master of sex. <laughs> In the end, he really was the true master of sex. <laughs> <laughs> that would be hilarious if the last episode of Master of None switches the title. <laughs> like at the very end, it's like this has been Master of Sex. <laughs> All right, if we're talking about Aziz Ansari, that means the movie is kind of thin soup. But I'm gonna try to go back to it. I'm back in baby's arms. How I miss those love. One of those things where it's or you can have like amazing performances, but at the end of the day, like it's still like sissy SpaceX singing Loretta Lynn songs. And like, yeah, she does a good job, but it's just like I would much rather just have like just listened to Coal Miner's daughter a few times and talked about that on the podcast. Um, because it's just I don't know. Yeah, again, it's just light enough filler. I, I think I said I was going to listen to the album. I didn't quite do that. But I like 15 minutes before we started recording, I, I listened to Coal Miner's Daughter, Fist City. I listened to like five or six songs and I enjoyed them all a lot. But yeah, listening to Coal Miner's Daughter and how it being like a hit song, you know, and it being autobiographical, it's kind of like, like JT was saying, it's like it's kind of a more richer experience to maybe listen to this music of a you know this musician i guess it makes sense that the music would be better than the the movie about them you know i watching this movie it definitely lost my interest over time you know just to be completely honest i uh there just wasn't enough meat on the bone and i think it kind of just proves you know maybe for myself but i feel like we're all in agreement here that you know we're you know, guys like us we need a little something in the movie you know what i mean it can't just be meat and potatoes we kind of I need I need a little bit of something to get me into a movie. I can't uh, something that's just kind of standard. Uh, I it's just not holding my attention as much as it used to. Well, it's truly the definition of the word generic, right? Yeah, 
that's the genre the 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 dramatic subgenre of musical biopic this is it uh it's the prototypical version it's not bad it's also not great i i think that it, it, I, I'm with you there, Malcolm. It makes me lose interest, especially because the way it hits the obligatory dramatic beats by the end has a real let's get out of here feeling. <laughs> like she has that low point scene where she can't remember any of the lyrics. And it is pretty well dramatically done, I guess. Uh, Sissy Spacek really sells that thing where, you know, the, there's one shot of her taking an extra pill at one point, but it's never really shown exactly what leads up to her having that breakdown on stage. But SpaceX performance is good enough to really communicate it. Um, but then it's just like there's one scene of Tommy Lee Jones being like, well, I uh, think I'm going to build me one of those houses right here for us. And then the next scene, she's back on stage. And then the movie ends. Like, I... I d- don't really get that is using that as like the dramatic low point. And I think that's just like a, an example of the larger trend of the movie in terms of like the mechanics of storytelling. It's just not really there, um, but it is carried enough by SpaceX and the general uh, just like subject matter that I think it's it's still an overall positive experience for me. That That is a good point. Like that final scene where like Tommy Lee's, like building the house and they're complaining about like the bedroom being at the front of the house. It does. It kind of seems it's the ultimate sanitizer because, you know, there's something interesting and kind of compelling about, you know, their relationship, you know, that we've talked about. It kind of puts a too neat of a bow on everything. And it's like, well, they get along, you know, they get along. It it was all good, I guess, you know, that, that kind of seems like what that scene's communicating to me and you know maybe that's the truth i don't know but like it's just i don't know just dramatically with so much of the movie kind of being on the relationship that it wasn't a very satisfactory ending to it yeah i also think at the time that her career takes place at least the back half of the career uh, her recording career that is there's like a dichotomy in country between people like her and the whole outlaw country uh, scene and JT obviously knows a lot more than me about country of this era but uh yeah it kind of like it just goes along with that dynamic that uh, this movie is very studio friendly and sanitized and conservative the way that her records kind of were in comparison to the outlaw stuff but just like new Hollywood versus classic Hollywood it's a false dynamic there because as we talked about the subject matter the autobiographical really dark stuff of her songs like don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind and the pill uh it really shows the darker side and that it's not all so clean cut conservative old school and i think that uh th- this movie just leans into that kind of studio friendly feeling but jt what do, what do you feel about the the country of the 60s and 70s i guess I really do like what you're saying there about it not showing the nuance and sort of that that dynamic between more conservative. It's like I don't want to say like studio like I don't know. Obviously, like all of those albums 
of that era are generally like well recorded, but like oh yeah, it's not like Shotgun Willie was you know cassette only sold out of trunk, you know <laughs> like yeah the, yeah, the Outlaw no, Country thing like, was also hugely commercially successful, but it's like yeah. the bifurcation of that whole country industry. You have this conservative, more like sort of like highly produced, I guess I'll say, like style of country that's really like a holdover from like like 40s 50s stuff that has like i don't know kind of i feel like now what people like will ape for like a dream pop stuff where it just all like you're hearing like it just i don't know these sort of soft soothing melodies that feel like they exist in like uh, i don't know some sort of other like just pleasant little plane or like you're in a nice like a nice comfortable lounging room and I feel like that does create this impression that, like, there are two separate worlds of country, which, like, there certainly are, and a lot of that, I feel like, falls down to a lot of people on the business end. But it's also, like, not how a lot of artists, like, worked either. I would say, like, many of these, like, older, uh, not like Loretta Lynn's older, but even, like, country artists that came before her, they do sort of give like props to like the outlaws and like there, there is this sort of interesting commingling there because even like more conservative, older country singers are obviously battling with the same like types of drug addiction, alcoholism, like adultery, like they're, I don't know, they're all in this sort of same world. It's just like certain groups. It was like, not like a talked about, yeah. They, or like they, they couldn't write songs about it. They were just doing it while also going to church and wearing tighter suits. Yeah. On Coal Miner's Daughter, uh, For the Good Times, uh, is a Chris Christopherson song mm-hmm. uh, that Loretta Lynn is covering. And that's, I don't know, that's like the be- the beauty of country music to me is like throughout generations of country music it's just people playing more or less the same songs covering Mm -hmm. them doing them different obviously that's totally like broad strokes like alighting a lot of like nuance in country music too but like there is this just like such enormous pool of history that country music is uh sort of building on throughout that i love and why i do generally have a I don't know like neutral to positive feeling about the movie overall because I do feel like even though it's like a mess in terms of like uh narrative like tying the worlds of like country all together you do get just the tiniest little bit of that and uh I don't know I appreciate like the fact that it gets like the scene even though if it could like depict it a lot uh it could depict it a lot better i think a good comparison here for the dramatic aims of the film is honky tonk man and how each of them treat like the voyage to the grand Ole opry and the kind of uh, nerve-wracking pre-show stuff and obviously it's far from fair to compare the filmmaking chops of michael apted <laughs> uh michael adequate apted to clint the god eastwood uh but yeah, I think that's a like a fair comparison of the dramatic intents of the films. But JT, I love what you said about country being this uh, thing of just playing the same old songs, covering them and doing renditions. And it's this ever-evolving 
generational, intergenerational conversation. Uh, I think two great examples of that, like in the 70s, uh, two Waylon Jennings songs, let's say, like uh, Are You Sure Hank Ain't Done It This Way and Bob Wills Is Still the King. It don't matter who's in Austin, Bob Wills is still the king. You know, that's like him as a 70s outlaw just shouting out these old school like 40s, 50s guys because those are still the real kings. And of course, you know, all every country singer from the most like ragged outlaw guys uh, to the most like radio friendly ones uh, up to a certain point in time all covered Hank Williams senior songs, you know, uh, and, and I think it's just like a genre that has such a unique history uh, and such a unique cyclical conversational history uh, that is ripe for great filmmaking, but haven't quite found what takes advantage of it yet. You know, maybe there hasn't been the movie yet, but we'll see. Maybe I'll make the movie. Yeah. Hell yeah. That, that's that. Like that aspect of country music. I'm not as well versed, but I do, I do like it, you know, as much as you guys but, you know, kind of as a beginner getting into it, I, that was one of the things that attracted me the most, you know, the history aspect and how um, kind of like it seems like anyone who made country music was like a huge country fan. You know, I guess that's a simple con- but it's like it's all over their work and like the nods to other people. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, it is kind of curious that like. You know, she did have a lot of uh, collaborations with Conway Twitty, and he's not really in the movie. Uh, and, you know, I kind of, like, I would like to capture that spirit. Like, you know, it would have been cool to see, you know, little cameos, like, in 24-hour party people. Obviously, those are going to be completely different movies. But if not by the actual people themselves, just, like, an actor playing Conway Twitty, you know, just get a nice, you know, little scene of that. But uh, I, I feel like, you know, I think respect is on this movie's mind in, in such a, you know, grand way that umbrellas over it, you know, being depicting things very respectfully. I feel like, you know, they put in a lot of legwork with that Patsy Cline character and, you know, having it being kind of like a juicy performance for Beverly uh, D'Angelo. And, you know, in a sense, I guess. But, uh, like, kind of the... I don't know. I would have liked it to be a little bit more freewheeling, but I guess that's, you know, like you guys are discussing, that's not exactly the type of country Loretta Lynn was making. Uh, Yeah. Malcolm, what you were saying about all these country singers being fans of the history, like, I feel like that's such a unique thing to the genre. And, you know, everyone has that, uh, even like, you know, people who try to keep the conversation going, like listening to, 70s records by people like Linda Ronstadt, for example, uh, someone I've come to really enjoy listening to because sometimes she'll sing something by like Hank Williams and sometimes she'll sing a Warren Zevon song or a Bob Dylan song or a Neil Young song. And I feel like continuing the legacy through the great songwriters of rock uh, is what's key there. It's like it's a genre that is founded in songwriting and personality and really the only other parallel i can think of 
is rap music uh, much later on. Uh, but like at the time, this was such a standalone thing. Obviously, you have the own genre of singer-songwriter. But uh, yeah, I feel like uh, just the conversation of songwriting just flows through country in a way uh, through the first half and middle of the 20th century that is unlike anything else. I feel like you pretty much hit the nail on the head with that. Like uh, I do. It is It is funny. The two most loathed genres, country and rap, that's where the history is. Yeah. The respect. Everything but country and rap. Those are people who hate personality and writing. <laughs> no, I think that's a good a good point. It's that so much of, you know, there's so much mythology and personality and rappers and country singers are putting so much of themselves out there when they make that music, you know what I mean? Compared to like, uh, I, like the war on drugs or, you know what I mean? Like, no, no disrespect, I guess. <laughs> Malcolm Kozilek over here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that's gonna do it on this week's discussion of uh, coal miner's daughter Loretta Lynn, country music, etc. We'll be right back on extended clip. You told me not to. What up? Don't worry about him, kids. If you're on the charts, you're gonna get played. What charts? You got a hit record. You don't know that. That really isn't the man. Is they just don't mix. Leave the ball or me behind. sick to have like a song that just features kelsey Grammer in character as frazier like how wale had the mixtape about nothing and he had like a skit with jerry seinfeld on it like if playboy cardi did uh the scrambled eggs all over my face mixtape the, the seinfeld wale mixtape is kind of like underrated in the grand scheme of things it just it's one exist. of the strangest cultural objects of all time. Like in 15 years, people will still be talking about how weird that is. I, I someone there's there's so much ripe opportunity there for people to make mixtapes regarding other TV shows. You know, I feel like you know, I feel like Sam Levinson's the type of guy where if he made a Euphoria mixtape, he might he might hit you up. So any aspiring rappers, singer songwriters out there, you know, maybe that's an angle. Maybe, maybe. I, I just want to make the uh, the news radio mixtape. <laughs> just have uh, the ghost <laughs> of Phil Hartman, yeah. <laughs> oh just talking to like a Phil Hartman soundboard. <laughs> like uh, that Kendrick skit with Tupac from that one album. Oh, God. How tasteless was that? That'd be like me putting Phil Hartman's ghost on the pod talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> the song called Phil Hartman's Ghost is cracking me up for some reason. <laughs> and we're back on Extended Clip. The segment is Malcolm in the Middle, which now exists at the end of the podcast. Malcolm, you watch anything uh anything good this week? Yeah, you know what? I watched uh I watched a little hit little indie movie that could called Asteroid City. You, you guys saw this too, I'm guessing? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. 
now you know i'm i'm living off the vod grind nowadays you know what i mean so i i had to wait till uh this hit the the markets and uh i i did i i did unfortunately i did watch this on amazon so i know there was some controversy there over the coloring sheen problem yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I took, I took it, I took the image. I thought the images were good. I took them with a grain of salt, though. I guess for some reason, just because of the the whisperings of saturation. You know what I mean? But I, I you know, I, I kind of, I like the movie, and I, I feel like, I when Isle of Dogs came out, I had a very negative opinion on Wes Anderson. And even at that point, I wouldn't even say I disliked most of his movies. I just kind of felt like Isle of Dogs. And I know you, Eddie, you're no, you're no fan of the his animation movies. So you're probably with me on this. You know, JTT, yeah. I don't want to exclude any. JT might, he might not. I don't know. I, um, Isle of Dogs is not his best work, yeah. certainly. Yeah, I think even, pe- you know, West fans are, you know, pretty adamant. Or, you know, that's a, that's a general opinion. And I don't know. I, it's one I, for them. And uh, one, in this case, them is twelve year olds. One for them. Hey, you know, the uh, you know, you know, you gotta make movies for your kids. I guess that's that's a fun thing. You could be like Richard Rodriguez and make Shark Boy and Lava Girl. But, um, <laughs> Richard Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> is that his name? Yes. <laughs> continue. Continue. Just continue. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's his name, but um, with I I feel like Asteroid City. I just admire Wes Anderson. I think this is a theory I have, and I I think Wes Anderson knows that for a lot of people, he's as as artistic as they're willing to get. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this is going to be like their one art movie of the year. You know, and I think he's kind of taken upon himself to make his movies a little more challenging. You know what I mean? And I think you see that in French Dispatch, but I, I really admired uh, Asteroid City, the kind of the the messing of the plot mechanics there with it being a fa- a play or whatever, and you keep cutting back to like the black and white reality with Brian Cranston. And I wasn't exactly, I don't know, it didn't, I wasn't blown away with it by at first, but by the end of the movie, I, I, I it emotionally connected with me. I, I thought it... I don't know. I thought it broke through. I had a negative opinion on Wes, and after seeing his past couple movies, I think I have to. I have to throw that opinion away. I, I have to tip my cap to him because I feel like he's he's still really he's 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 making challenging stuff considering his position. Yeah, I feel like there was a big pushback against him, maybe leading into Grand Budapest, and then like it, there was a micro. Uh, swing in the other direction with Isle of Dogs and stuff because I think enough people really liked Grand Budapest but the general thing is like people were sick of it kind of right mm-hmm. and uh, he's doubled down on everything that he did the the maximalism of his production design and you know what that's fine because it's great uh, I don't think there's anyone in American cinema who's production design and cinematography uh, work together at the level that his does. I mean, he uses it for his multi-layered metatextual films that he's done the last few times out, and it just works to such a great effect. It's like 
between Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, French Dispatch, and this one, they're each so much more about the deconstruction and finding the emotion like within this labyrinth of aesthetic and narrative uh, experiments almost. I don't know. It's just like for some people, it's easy to just get turned off. And for other people, it's like he's at the height of his powers right now. And Malcolm, what you said about this being like the one arty movie per year some people will see is such a great point because it just makes me respect him so much more that he's doubled down in this capacity where these films are so much about their own construction at this point. And he's still finding such great pathos within that. Like it's never too detached somehow. Yeah. So hats off to Wes. I think maybe he, you know, he lost some cool points. Me being the guy who gives out the cool points, I think he got him back. Yeah. I think he got him back and he's up and he's up too, you know. So credit to him. You know what hating Wes Anderson is, is like in the early twenty tens when people called people that shopped at Urban Outfitters hipsters and hated them. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think there's part of that for sure. I feel like it's good every now and then for a director to sort of get heat checked. Like, just sort of oh. see, like, th- for things to tighten up on them a little bit, opinion to sway a little bit negatively. I mean, obviously, I don't think fucking, like, I it, I don't think Wes Anderson knows or really cares or, like, pr- would gives a shit. I mean, sure, you see, like, mass reception to, like, Isle of Dogs, I'm sure, uh, being, like, more negative than his other films, but, like... I don't know. It's good for the tide to turn in the negative way and sort of see, like, uh, the work that uh, comes out of that. And I do feel like, especially him doubling down, being a lot more, like, structurally experimentive in the last two uh, movies, I feel like is is really going to push some people away. But, again, I just, like, when people are trying to like parody or pin down his style in some way, I feel like it's challenging because it's just like, it's constantly evolving. I mean, it's within like, he's incredibly consistent, but he's still uh, exploring uh, new avenues and like doing a lot of great new things with film form. And uh, I don't know, continue to be excited for his releases. I think for a lot of people, his films are just too French. Which is, I here's here's I think all the French hate, which is you know it's whatever I don't care. But like it's ironic Bush era uh, pastiche and like kitsch. It's yeah. lame. The French France is great. Yeah, we we love France on this. Uh, they they're literally the second best. They're the second best movie country. What the fuck are you doing hating on France if you like art at all? Like come on. It, and here's and here's another thing. I'll take it a step further. I've never met a French person ever. Like I don't like I wait. Okay, wait. <laughs> I I I can't in my life. I'll, I'll take it a step further. I've never met a French person ever. I don't, I, First I, of all, not a step further in the direction that I was talking. But second of all, I do not believe you. <laughs> It's a step further in that, like, why are people hating on French people? Like, I can't even find one. I don't know. I don't even know what who these people are like at all. You know what I mean? Like, I 
like I, I, I like I, I don't have any personal basis to hate a French per or like even dislike or whatever. Like I, and maybe I did meet someone who was French, but I, they didn't really, they didn't tell me, so I didn't pick up on it. But I've never like met someone or have like knowingly been, like talked to someone knowing that they are a French person. You've never met a guy named like Jacques or like Jean. As far as I can recall, no. <laughs> God damn, dude. So that's uh, wild. That's sick. Honestly, that's that's good for you. Uh, I hope that streak continues for the sake of just pure idiosyncrasy. So if you're a French guy, get in touch. Get in touch with me. Oh, Wes Anderson. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I, the comparison comes up because he's the closest American filmmaker I can compare to Francois Truffaut. Uh, and obviously there's other French filmmakers he takes inspiration from. Jean Renoir is another huge one. Uh, but I think that his hyper-controlled aesthetics and the literary ambitions of them uh, really reflect Truffaut more than any other American filmmaker I've seen. And hey... If you don't like Truffaut, come on, man. What are you doing? <laughs> what about you? What uh, JT? What do you see anything over the week that caught your eye? Uh, yeah. Just before recording, I watched a poem is a naked person uh, by Les Blanc or Les Blank. Um, what is that like a rapper like Mos uh, Def or something? <laughs> uh. <laughs> not quite but this i don't know i wanted to at some point this week i was planning on watching another music film uh to bring to the table for the middle segment and this is something that caught my eye recently when you hear like the first time because this is on criterion collection i saw the title a poem is a naked person. And it's just like, that's like, uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a title that like signifies a lot of, I don't know, just flowery bullshit to me. And I was immediately put off, like sight unseen, not really knowing what it was about. But re le recently I had discovered that it was about Leon Russell, famous session musician musician in his own right uh music producer songwriter and it takes place uh over like a few years at this oklahoma like recording studio that russell had in like a church entirely like re renovated the interior of a church and it's uh like a 90 some minute film was I think because of a fellow that Russell used to work with, there were a lot of song rights issues, like after they split. Mm -hmm. So the film was never released uh, in like the 70s after it was made. It was released in 2015 because of all the rights issues, which I was like, I don't know. It's neat that like a document of the time period would finally come to light then. But I don't know. It's just a lot of really fun footage that like obviously it's it's like a non-fiction film uh but comparing it to something like coal miner's daughter because this is like russell is in kind of the rock and roll like country sort of like overlap hybrid there that is happening at the time 
and it's just such a more compelling look at like an interesting musical subculture because you get a lot of like huge musicians in this like uh george jones willie nelson uh eric anderson like you you get like a lot of big like like musicians involved but also because russell is coming into this like small like oklahoma town to build this studio and he's sort of like a hippie country boy hybrid he is able to like sort of blend in and get like a lot of people who already live there to like him like just uh oklahomans that you would think would like just despise him at the sight of his long hair but there's a really interesting scene in the documentary where Russell is playing like old ass like gospel country music with just like people in the town. One of the dudes is like they less less blank is like interviewing him and he's like talking about just like oh yeah he like paints signs and like he's just a sign painter but he's just like also like just has an interest in music and uh, I don't know the way that the documentary sort of like combines three years worth of footage to like cover I, I, I like concerts and performances while also having sort of more lyrical montages make for a really compelling film. And if you like any of this like type of music, I would uh, definitely recommend like checking it out. I'm going to have to check that out because I actually haven't seen any Les Blank documentaries. Uh, so that's like a huge blind spot for me. Maybe the biggest nonfiction blind spot director I have uh, and that seems like a great one to jump in with. I've only really seen the his movie about uh, the making of Fitzcarraldo, Burden of Dreams, mm-hmm. which I thought was that, like that's a pretty great documentary. But it had been years since I'd seen that. But this uh, is a lot of fun. I, I think you would fuck with it as well. So the other day I watched a movie called Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Uh, This is directed by English uh, genre filmmaker Gordon Hessler. The only one I had seen by him previously was uh, the remake of Murders in the Rue Morgue. Have you guys seen the remake of that from the 70s with Jason Robards? Uh, It's it's pretty good. The 30s one is like a hundred times better. But this is a movie, this is kind of a rock exploitation movie in the vein of the Ramones' rock and roll high school. Uh, but unfortunately, Kiss is nowhere near as good as the Ramones. And uh, whatever production unit Gordon Hessler was running with was not quite as good as like late 70s Roger Corman produced rock exploitation, you know, uh, with like Joe Dante working on it and stuff like that. Uh, but this is a very strange movie. It takes place at Six Flags Magic Mountain. Uh, we've all been there, right? Yeah, Ma- that's, that's my, that's my, I, I guess I do live near there. I was going to be like, should I reveal that? But to be honest, I think I'm all right. I think if you say <laughs> that you live in the greater Santa Clarita Valley area, nobody will find you. Yeah, nobody's trying to They will be very scared by, like, whoever <laughs> listens to this podcast and drives into Santa Clarita will immediately pick up a tail, uh, and they will be like, all right, this cop's been following me for no reason. I'm getting out of here. I'm not finding Malcolm. 
<laughs> I'm well protected. Malcolm's like scared now. He's a little. He's down the leg. He's weak. He's like I don't. I would hate for someone to one of our crazed fans to take advantage of that. This is his bow is afraid moment. Malcolm is afraid. <laughs> well, here's another thing about I'm multiple locations, Malcolm. So I got you know I might I got a place there. I got a place here. I could be there. Could be there. You know what I mean? I'm not. Uh, I'm not necessarily at home all the time. So you know th- they might miss me. Anyway, Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park, uh, high concept genre stuff, you know, like the rock band Kiss gets a uh, residency at Six Flags Magic Mountain, and uh, unfortunately a guy who works there is like a diabolical evil scientist who's cloning people who work at the park, and like the first like 20 minutes are kind of better than they have any right to be, Uh, it's like, you know, this girl is like hanging out with her boyfriend at Six Flags because he works there. So they just like hang out for the first part of the day that he's like, all right, I'm going to go to work now. And then he gets cloned and turned into an Android. And, uh, you know, she's like looking for her boyfriend and the whole layer gets revealed and everything. And you're like, wait, this is kind of cool. And then the band kiss shows up and you're like, Oh, okay. And the rest of the movie is not good at all uh, because the band kiss is one of the worst rock and roll products of all time um but the opening sequence the opening titles are very fun you know some cool like uh overlaying graphics of like pov riding the roller coaster with gene simmons sticking his tongue out in your face uh stuff like that is uh all, all the kiss exploitation you can imagine is taken advantage of so if you can tolerate the music of the rock band kiss and the likes of Ace Frehley, Peter Chris, Gene Simmons, and Paul Stanley. Uh, maybe you'll get more out of this movie than I would. But, uh, you know, it's it's a fun enough rock exploitation artifact. Is there anything for uh, the coaster heads? I know you mentioned that POV shot. But was the, is there any good roller coaster action, it, you know, it being set at Six Flags? Uh, there's a little bit of uh, Colossus, of course. But, uh, yeah, Revolution the uh first one to have a loop of course is like the center of attraction there that's like the opening of the movie not just the op or the opening credits actually takes place over colossus i believe and then uh that's like the old wooden one right yeah yeah and then the first sequence is like the main couple uh on revolution uh, a nice pov shot you know of the roller coaster. So for the coaster heads out there, you know, it might be worthwhile just for that, but the coasters are not really integrated into the plot in a way that you would want them to be probably probably because they couldn't shut down the park. It's a pretty low budget movie. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, those are, that's for the deep cut coaster heads, you know, people who are just uh, dying to get more, you know, more of it. Yeah. So it being set in 1978 reminded me that when I was a kid, my dad told me one time when he took me to Six Flags that he worked there. That was like his first job when he was a teenager. He would ride his dirt bike to Six Flags from the valley and work there for minimum wage or whatever. Uh, And I was like, wait a second. The years add up. And so I texted him and I was like, hey, dad, were you working at Six Flags when they shot Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park? And he said, yes, I believe I did see Kiss there. <laughs> Not impressed. Yeah. So history, the cinema, uh, it, it's all an everlasting loop of fatherhood and love as demonstrated in the film Interstellar, which I also recently rewatched. But that's a conversation for another day. Hey, can I use your truck where you got? 
Next week, the exciting conclusion of the extended clip month of music. You guys ready for my selection? I'm, I'm turning up my boombox. You want to hear the least surprising thing ever? Uh, we're going to be talking about Bob Dylan. Uh, we're talking about the Todd Haynes film, I'm Not There. Hell yeah, brother. I have not seen it yet either, but it does have the icon, the mascot of the podcast, Dr. T himself, Richard Gere, okay. playing Dylan as Billy the Kid. I'm in. So we are in for a good time. It also has Tar herself playing mid-60s Don't Look Back Dylan. So, uh, yeah, th- it's going to be a lot of fun. I know it's a very controversial movie for the Dylan heads, uh, and I like Todd Haynes a lot, so I'm expecting to like it a lot. I like Todd Haynes a lot, and I, you know, I, I like Dylan. I, I think, I think, I think it'll be good. I'm a big fan of this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's, I, maybe there'll be some disagreement on this. I would be curious Ooh. to see if anyone hates it that, to really hash it out. But I'm already in the bag for this one. I watched it uh, for the first time, like maybe like one or two years ago now. Well, as a nice transition into next week, we will leave you with, let's see, how about a uh, how about a Linda Ronstadt, Bob Dylan cover to bridge the lady country to the Dylan. We'll see you next week, everybody. Close your eyes. Close the door. You don't have to worry. Shut the